Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, welcome back to In The Pink. Now, next up on the podcast is a woman who's widely regarded as the best British female skier of all time. When I booked Shemi Olcott for In The Pink, I knew she'd be a great talker, but she even surprised me with just how engaging she is. She's broken a shocking 49 bones in her body and yet has just kept coming back to achieve more. Her story is tragic, inspiring, and motivating. I have no doubt that listening to her today will put a spring right back in your step. Enjoy Shemi Alcott. How lovely to see you. Your bright, sunshiny little face popping off on my computer, bringing in some light into the darkness that is lockdown. Um, how are you coping with lockdown? I have been really, really good. In fact, I've been so good that I felt guilty for how positive I've been. I think for the last five years since I retired, I've kind of been this whirlwind of busyness and craziness trying to redefine who I was when I became not a ski racer. Um, so with like the TV and motherhood and everything. In fact, after both babies, I went back to work after two weeks. Um, and I thought that that was something that I had to do because I gave birth in the winter and I needed to work and I got such a short timeline to work. So this is almost like me having maternity. You know, having that time to bond with the boys again. And when they are newborn babies, they, they don't need much as long as you can feed them, keep them safe, keep them warm and everything. Now they're both very moldable little crazy creatures. So it's actually quite nice to have the time to give them right now. And obviously it's enforced time, um, which I think makes it even more enjoyable because there's nothing else I can do except for all of that massive to-do list in terms of things in motherhood that I had opportunities to improve, um, you know, domestic things, rooms that I have just piled up with crap for years, going into them and finding treasures. I just think it's, it, it's, it's, it's really brutal what the girl's world is going through, but it's definitely a pause and a timeout. And we've seen this already with, with the climate that we needed. It's so true. And I'm so pleased that you have been able to draw such strong positives from it. I, I agree with you. I mean, like we constantly feel guilty as mothers that we're not being a good enough mum or we're not working hard enough. Whereas now we just, we can't, we can't leave the house. And it's, I've, I've treasured the time. It's been amazing. Um, okay. I, don't want to be false. I did actually for the last 24 hours, I have 
started to struggle. Um, and I've been seeing and supporting people who've had a lot of anxiety with this lockdown, especially people living alone. Um, and I've kind of been supporting everyone through that, but feeling that I was okay. And then last night, weirdly, I, I, I didn't have a, a panic attack or anything, but I was lying in bed. I tried to go to bed early, um, too early. You know, when you're not ready for bed and you start overthinking. And obviously yesterday was a really poor, poor day um, for the UK in terms of deaths, real tragic day. Um, and I was just reading everything. I was like sucked into the, to the negativity of, of, of the brutality of this pandemic. And, and I started to spiral. And I think it's really important to admit to that. And today we've woken up as a household and we are all um, in, a, in a kind of gray cloud today, all of us, including my boys, which is very weird. Um, so we sat down, we have these morning um, circle times that we all do. Um, and this morning it was a real struggle. We were trying to look at positives and goals for the day and everything. And, and I realized that we were all in the same boat, that we were manifesting this negativity. And I said, you know what, that's okay. It's absolutely okay. We are in this lockdown, this situation that none of us have been in before. Uh, normally we're mountain people and we should be in the mountains right now. And this is so foreign to us that we have to allow ourselves to, to be sad. Um, and I'm, 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 I'm a real culprit of always being happy and always showing the rose tinted side of life. Um, and that shows like, you know what, this is, this is okay. It's okay to be scared right now. Mm. When you say culprit, that's quite interesting because that suggests that you feel you have to be that rather than it naturally always the case. Cause you know, no one can be happy all of the time. So where do the negative feelings go if you're sort of burying them? I think it, it, this kind of comes back to quite a tough, uh, situation that I went through when I was 22 and my mum passing away and um, she was a very vivacious incredibly busy person she lived more in her 58 years than most people live in their whole life and after that I was going through kind of her life in my head and I realized that um, she never dwelled on the crappy things she never let them eat into her she always bought a positive out of them and I think because of that Yes, maybe she was imitating someone else who could handle that, who had the strength to handle those situations, but she went through through tough times, um, but she never outwardly portrayed um, that she was a victim. Um, and I think for me that that was a turning point because I saw the strength she gained from, maybe it is an act, but I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, sometimes maybe because I have a tiny social media presence um, and I am always happy, I people expect that from me so I do always bring that out but I don't think that's an issue at all because naturally by by being that person you know the the, the great circle is that I end up being happier because of it um so I I shouldn't have said the word culprit um I think that is just me knowing that I do need to be a bit more honest sometimes with tough times because otherwise everyone thinks that I'm just sailing through life. I remember when I went back to work really quickly after the kids, I was like, no, it's fine. I can handle this. I can handle this. And I remember crying almost nightly at 2 a.m., you know, during those painful breastfeeds and my boobs were bleeding and I was just struggling. But I was like, no, I've said I'm going to do this, so I'm going to do this. No, mm -hmm. I'm stupidly stubborn. Um, so that was, that's actually why I started my podcast about motherhood, because I couldn't really find much realness out there. You know, many people who are showing the techniques of, picking themselves up through that tough time. It was all, oh, you have a baby and it's amazing. Your life changes the better. Yes, it does. But you have to work hard to make it change for the better. Mm -hmm. um, we'll talk more on 
your mum later because I know that her, her death was very sudden, wasn't it? Which was obviously a horrible shock to you. Um, I'm really interested to know how, how much that impacted you. I know you took a bit of time out. Uh, well, let's talk about it now because we can go back to the start of your career after that. Um, how much do you think it has defined you and how much, um, much of a struggle was it at the time versus the benefits that you've seen from it now? Just taking a bit of time out to mourn the loss of your mum and perhaps press the reset button that we've talked about before. So yeah, it was it was absolutely crazy situation. The last time I ever saw my mum was at the Turin Olympics in 2006. Um, and weirdly, I was disqualified in an event that was a two-day event. And at the time, I was thinking, oh my God, this is disastrous. This is my best event. But because of that, it allowed us to have a family meal that night. And I obviously only really realised the significance of this afterwards, but we all came together in, in Sestria and we had this great family meal, even though my parents were divorced at the time. It was the first time we all kind of under one umbrella shared this great family dinner. Um, and then I remember I waved goodbye to my mum getting onto an Italian bus. Um, and I said, I'll see you at the end of the season because I wasn't going to see her till I drove back. And then I drove back overnight at the end of the season. And I remember I had Red Bull, which I never normally drink. Um, and I couldn't sleep the next day, so my house was quite high. So on the top floor of my house was my bedroom, and I took a sleeping pill, and no one could wake me up that night. And that was the night that my mum was taken to hospital. Um, and she was taken there, she'd fainted, uh, and my brothers were alerted to this. They said she was dehydrated, told her to go home and drink water. And two hours later, she passed away. So everyone was trying to wake me up that night. They were trying to like get me to be involved in a situation where I don't know the gains that would have happened from it. Me going to hospital, seeing her when she'd recently passed away as opposed to like finding out the next day. But you know, it was the right thing that they thought to do, but no one could wake me up. And in hindsight, actually, it's quite a beautiful thing because my mum was very strong. I have this great memory of her throughout my life as a, as a very positive image. I would not have wanted to seen her that night and I woke up the next morning went downstairs and there were these daffodils on my table because it was Easter and, and she said darling I hope you had a good drive home I'll see you later and that that I, I read that and then I I got a text from a friend of mine saying may the angels be with you so I still didn't know at this point what? and I my heart just dropped my heart just dropped because obviously my family was still trying to get hold of me oh my god, oh my god. So my heart dropped and then I called my brother and he said, look, just get in your car and come to me in Putney. And I was like, what's happened? Like something's happened anyway. And I cried the whole way there because I, I didn't know what happened, but I knew it was something big. And I got there and um, my other brother was flying over from New York. And um, oh my God, it's so crazy, isn't it? That you can still get these emotions, even though it was so long ago. I've actually not relived it that much. And I know that's you didn't ask me to relive it. I'm choosing to, by the way. Um, but I sat there and, and, and they told me and that th there's this massive shock. She wasn't ill. She, she, she was the strongest woman I knew. Um, and I just, I kind of didn't believe it. I didn't believe it. And they said, look, do you want to go and see her? And this, this is something that I, I, I chose to do. And I wanted to go alone and see my mum. And I chose to do it. And I really regret it because when I saw her, she wasn't there. You know, she was had this crazy energy, my mum, crazy, vibrant colour around her and, and that was gone. And so I, I do regret seeing that because I would have loved to have kept that last image of her being that amazing dinner that we'd all had together and her waving goodbye to me getting on that bus. But I took a actually weirdly two days after that, 
I stayed with my brother and I think I just cried and curled up for a few days. My big brother flew over from New York and we had very different ways of mourning. I'm, I'm very passionate, passion driven and my youngest, all the brothers the same. So we were in the same boat, whereas my big brother, he'd always had to take on the emotions of our family. So he literally put everything that he needed to do under the carpet and came over to deal with the whole bigger picture of death, which is, which is horrible, you know, the probate and everything like that. And, and the paperwork and I'm just in awe that he could do that back then. And, and I was like, look, I need time out. I need time out. And I, I for years, I, I, I'd been born, actually inherited from my mum. I'd been born with these banana shaped bones in my feet. She was a swimmer, my mum, so I had really wide feet. Amazing for her. For me, cramming those into ski boots was, was a nightmare. So I'd had these like open wounds that were infected for a long time. I used to actually have to cut holes in the side of my ski boots for my bunions to fit. So almost on the snow, when I rolled onto the ski, my bunion was touching the snow. So I was like, right, I'm going to go and have surgery. Um, and it's not a huge surgery, but if you have both feet at the same time, you are in a wheelchair. So I ended up being in a wheelchair for a few months. And, um, and I ch it was a really weird timing to do that. And, uh, and I did it because I knew that I, it was the only way that I wouldn't busy myself and not deal with the emotions of, of you know, my, my biggest fan, my biggest love at that point, not being there every day. Mm. Um, so I did that. I did go off the rails then. And actually for, for about two weeks, I went off the rails. I, I'm not a drinker. I'm an athlete. And I just buried myself. I remember I, in my house, I put a mattress as I came in because I couldn't walk up and down stairs. And, and I just did what I thought normal uh, young 20s people were supposed to do in mourning. I kind of followed these rules of escapism and, and having a drink and detesting myself because of it. Because that's not what anyone or my mum would have wanted. And, and then I started writing. And I started writing. Um, and that was my, my massive outlet. And that kind of very quickly brought me back to the direction. I remember a lot of people saying and hearing the rumours, would, would I keep skiing? because everyone had thought that I was skiing for my mum. She was a very um, big supporter of my skiing. Um, maybe on the outside of the world, she seemed pushy and I can see why, but that was her. I was a really driven young girl. I went to New Zealand when I was 10 on my own because I had this big dream to be a bit the best skier I could be. Um, and, I, and I didn't want to be that determined because that's unfortunately a really unattractive trait for young girls to say, I want to be the best. I want to do this. So I hid behind my mum. I said, oh, you know, not she's making me do it, but it's her idea. And I did that a lot. And she let me do that, even though it kind of put her character down um, in public. Well, actually, so then when she did, it came from me, all from me. All the drive was all there. And she, and she knew that because she was a competitive swimmer. So she had that instinct as well. Um, and she took that, she took that role that I had created her, this kind of semi-monster, this pressurized mum role and ran with it because she knew that it would help me be more popular, I guess, oh. and enjoy my youth more, which is, which is really tough. So then when, when she did die, people said, oh, is Shemi going to keep skiing? She's always skied for Eve. Is it for her? So that's when I started writing and it took me, I don't know, about a day to realise that this was nothing. My, my career and my passion for skiing is something that my mum had supported my whole life and not something she pushed me into. What so that was really great. Actually. What's that? What were you writing? Uh, just just how I felt um but very honest I remember that it's quite hard to read now talking about 
my demons a lot and things I'd felt I'd hidden from my mum that I should have shown her, you know, the kind of reckless teenage years where I'd done things and I'd not shown her who that was because she always thought I was this perfect daughter. Um, but, but, but it was a real, it was a self-healing for me and, and it was a very explorative way of me finding the strength to be without my mum. And actually the season after, because I dug so deep into who I was and the vulnerability that I wanted to show people was part of me now. Um, the season after she passed away, I hardly did any training um, and it was my best season ever. I remember my first weekend racing, I went to Lake Louise and there were no expectations, no pressure. Um, I'd hardly done any, any training, as I said, and I went there and I, and I got my best three days races in a row. I think I came 11th twice and 22nd and that was it for me because I was like, you know what? I might not have the physical strength that I've had before, but I've got so much heart right now. And it wasn't I was skiing for her. It was just that I had this massive clarity in, in who I was and my goals. And it was, it was amazing. And I think I turned that into a big positive. And she's part of me every day. I, I have um, my wedding ring is her ring. Uh, and I, I inherited it when she passed away. And when Dougie proposed, I was always thinking that that would be, I would just have her ring. And then a few years into our relationship, when things started to get serious, I remember finding the ring and putting it on and just bursting into tears because I never realized how similar my hands were to my mum. And weirdly, I had red nails on at the time. That's all she had, red nails. And I put the ring on and it, it was too much. It was too much to have her exact ring bringing too many emotions. So actually we, we reset it and, um, and now she's with me all the time. And I remember, <laughs> I remember the, the, the hardest part of my first labor and looking down looking at the ring and th and channeling her strength i know it sounds crazy but because she's always there on my hand um and it, and it helps to have that massively that is lovely that is wonderful and what was the cause of death so so she had liver failure um this is actually quite sad in itself and um when you have liver failure um that's not enough you've got to find out the reason why so obviously um drugs and alcohol are the first things they test for uh, my mum was not involved in either of those so we couldn't bury her for six months we had an open autopsy for six months so this was quite a brutal healing process as well i remember we we had a memorial service in richmond uh, and 500 people came and it was it was just the most amazing thing but in the back of our brain you know she, she we she wasn't buried yet and it took us six months to to be able to do that and that was really really hard um, and they never found a reason for it they never found anything which um, in itself is tough to not have closure in that respect yeah it was it was for a while but now i see it she was you know, she loved excitement, my mum. She loved drama. So I feel like that was like the last drama in her life, this big, oh my God, who did it kind of situation. And, and that's how I look at it now. Um, because nothing was simple with her. You know, I'm, I'm making her sound like a, a, a legend and she was, but she was complicated. She was very complicated. I remember she uh, did a degree in women's liberation, but she also taught at Lucy Clayton's, uh, the finishing school. So some very bizarre contradictions to her life, great stories. In fact, my 18th birthday, um, we had this yellow Metro and I just learned to drive and I had a card on the table and I was like, oh, I'm getting the car because there was only a card, there was no present. I'm like, in that, 
it says that car's mine. I was so excited. I opened it up and it was a week's grammar course on how to become a lady at Lucy Clayton's. And I was like, are you serious? I'm a ski racer. I can't do this. And she's like, I think it'll do you good. So yeah. Oh, gutting. And all you wanted was the car. I don't blame you. Hello Metro. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, going back to, you, you touched on the fact that you were over in New Zealand at the age of just 10. Um, I read somewhere that you started skiing as early as like two years old. Is that true? And you know, because um, I remember asking you before, when is a good time for a kid to learn to ski? Because it's an amazing thing to grow up doing. And if you get them in early enough, it just becomes instinctive, doesn't it? And you said to me, when they can jump, they can ski. Yes, I said to you and Zara, oh my God, this story. And you took it with a kind of pinch of salt. And then Zara friggin' sent me a video of Maya jumping off their bed, which was like, yay, high, one and a half meters. And she's like, is she ready now? I'm like, oh yeah, I said a foot. So, so yes, there's this, there's this general rule of thumb for, for kids that if they can jump off a step and land and absorb the landing, their hips are ready. Um, but it's very individual. Uh, some children are three and four. I started when I was 18 months. I think there's kind of a backstory there. Both of my parents were athletes. My dad was a rugby player. My mom, as I said, was a swimmer. So I did inherit some kind of athletic genes. But also, I've got three older brothers. So when I was born, my eldest brother was already racing. He'd been talent ID'd by French ski school. And that's what he was doing. And he was like my idol. I wanted to do everything he was doing. Um, it. How so, did he get into it? Because it is quite unusual for a, a Brit to yeah. follow that path, isn't it? But, so, my dad wasn't allowed to ski when he was playing rugby. So as soon as he retired, they went skiing and fell in love with it. So it became their everything. Right. You know, these kind of sports people who've kind of had training drummed into them. Then they find skiing. They're like, well, this is a great sport. Um, so, yes, it became their passion later on in life. So um, my, my big brother, he learned early as well. And then he was very, very talented. Um, so I'm born in July. My second Christmas, I was on skis. But... Now that I'm a parent and I've done the same with my sons, they were both 14 months, I wasn't really skiing and they're not really skiing. They're on skis, on the mountain, learning about this environment, walking on the snow. It's not skiing. Mm. So a lot of <laughs> pediatricians are like, kids should not ski that young. I mean, they're not making these fat arcs at 70 miles an hour. They're literally just cruising down the slope, falling over. And that's what they love doing. But I think it's about instilling, you know, that it's not a, a scary environment. So that's why I think starting young is great, um, depending on what you do. You know, um, a lot of my, my friends, I get their kids, those plastic skis to walk around their carpeted house with, because that's all they're gonna do for the first week on holiday anyway. It's just like learning about the edge control, the skis and everything. Um, so you don't have to spend a fortune on lessons when they're that little. Yeah, very true. Um, and explain to us about the the various disciplines that you are involved in for anyone who doesn't know um you are you world cup um alpine ski racer but there are the various five disciplines can you just talk us through them yeah, yeah so there's a quite a lot of variety in terms of alpine skiing there's there's slalom um which have single poles and you put your body inside the pole and you deflect the pole and there's a radius in that of around 12 meters so it's quite fast it's called disco legs you've got to have very high agility very pow high power um, and precision um, and it's the slowest discipline probably the fastest movement but the slowest in terms of speed 
Then you have giant slalom, which some people say is the kind of backbone to skiing. Um, it's a very fluid motion around 25, 20, 20 to 25 meter radius. Um, the gates are across and they're the double flag gates. Um, and you have two runs of those. They're called the technical disciplines. And then you have the speed disciplines, which is super G and downhill. I'll talk about downhill first. That's kind of the essence of alpine skiing when they you see a mountain and you go straight down it. So uh, now we do have gates and safety netting. Yes, it's for the crazies. Uh, you do one run, but you get training runs beforehand. So you do get a lay of the land. You get to inspect and look at where you're going. And um, super G, you go around 70 miles an hour, 60, 70 miles an hour. So it's a slower discipline than downhill. Um, but you inspect the course and then you go straight away. So in terms of the psych and the mental confidence needed, I think that is the most challenging. And then there's the Alpine combined, um, which is slalom and downhill. So combining the two ends of the spectrum together. So it takes a lot of varying talents. There's actually another one now. There's, um, there's the parallel. I mean, it's going crazy where you race against someone next door, um, which is very exciting and very fun. And is that dangerous? Well, They're racing next to it. Yeah, yeah, racing next to it just in their different ways i think it's more about how much you push yourselves i think that's any sport um now, you, know, you, me, you clearly have pushed yourself to a ridiculous extent now you have broken 49 bones in your body are you a accident prone b just the perils of the profession or a combination of the two yeah massively all, all of the above um <laughs> I, I actually get hurt doing lots of things uh, before motherhood, I have to say before motherhood. I'm, I'm one of those person who knows where my limit is and tries to explore crossing it quite a lot. And so I have got injured in other sports that I've done quite a lot as well. Um, but it's, it's actually a weird one that's because actually for eight years of my life in my prime, um, in my early twenties, when I knew that I had the potential physically and mentally to win a world cup, I skied within myself. So it's actually quite tragic when I retired, I looked back at my career and thought, why didn't I ever win? Um, and it's because I'd made this choice to ski at 80% because I had a huge fear of failure. During my twenties, I was this kind of prodigy. Um, so Clive Woodward was supporting me. I had so many sponsors. A lot of people were pinpointing me as, as the potential winner in alpine skiing from, from Britain. And it was kind of a big, it wasn't pressure, um, but I had this, I had this fear inside me that if I went 100% and still didn't win, I'd have to admit to myself and all of those people who'd invested in me that I just wasn't good enough. So I had this really dangerous platform of performance where I chose to perform at 80%. I chose to keep some of my potential in my back pocket because then I knew I had a reason why I wasn't winning. And it was really, really tragic to look back and say that was my best years. That was my injury-free years. And I was choosing to not perform my best. I was choosing to underperform and it was, it's brutal, brutal. Um, but then I put myself in this position um, where I could go all out in a race. I'd had a poor first run. Uh, I just qualified the second run. Um, and I was like, you know what, let's just, let's just kill it. Let's just ski free with that freedom to charge without any expectation. Um, and I won that second run. And that was the pinpoint, my massive turning point in my career because Although everyone else had believed I could win, that was the moment where I realized I could do it. And I stood in that finish area and I, and I was obviously ecstatic. Um, I moved up to 10th place, um, but 
I realized that for years I, I had been skiing in the most unsatisfying or living, living in the most unsatisfying way because I was never going out there and doing my best. So from then on in my career, it looks quite disastrous actually, because every time I went in that start gate, I pushed through that limit. I went 100%. When you go 100%. What year, what year are we talking here? Um, so that was 2008. 2008. Was that, that, that was the big turning point. That was the big turning point. Sold in, World Cup um, opener. It's a really difficult track, gnarly track, so it suited me. I was very good at skiing on the steeps and not on the flat. Um, and, and from then on, actually, on paper, my, my career looks quite disastrous. A month after that, I broke my ankle. Um, and so I was always recovering from injuries. Mm. Whereas the eight years before that, I hadn't had any big injuries. So it took, from 2008 onwards, is the, the part of my career that I'm most proud of. And yet I spent probably 80% of it fighting back from injury. That's so interesting. And, and, and talk us through those injuries because they have been, well, some of them catastrophic. I mean, you broke your neck as young as 11 years old. Psychologically, how did you come back from that? And how did you convince yourself that actually skiing was what you were meant to do? Well, the, well, the first thing, the, the younger injuries I had, so they, they were severe. And if they'd been later on in my career, it could have been a different end point. But uh, my neck, I also cracked my humor. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And I was two millimeters away from paralyzing my right arm forever. I remember when I took it out the sling, my arm got two centimeters bigger each time because it was just held on by the skin around. Um, but both those injuries when I was young, I remember them as a kind of a very brief pause. Nothing deterred me when I was young from my dream. I knew that's what I wanted to be a ski racer. Um, I healed very quickly. I mean, within nine months of breaking my neck, I was back skiing. Um, so those ones I kind of disregard. They sound they sound exciting, okay, but they are they're nothing. Whereas the latter ones, when I my, my compound tib fib, um, which actually obviously people won't be able to see this, but can you see? Well, they will. I mean, I'm definitely going to clip this up so you can see it. Let's have a look. I don't know how close I can get, but um, if you can see, I've still got this huge lump here. So my leg is still broken. 
I don't know if you can see that. That's my scar. I'm lucky I shaved my legs. Anyway, I've still got a kind of centimeter bulge on the front of my shin. Oh um, my that God. is the one that I am reminded of daily still. Um, because that was compounded fib. Um, that was, as I said, I was learning to live my life at my maximum. I was at that level where I, if I finished and finished to my best, I, I could have been right in there at the top of the game. Um, and that, that was really disastrous. Uh, that was kind of emergency surgery. I then broke that bone another three times in the next four years. Um, that bone is now still broken, so it will always be broken. I have a, a metal nail down the bone marrow of my right leg, and that's how I walk and perform and do sport now, and it's great. There's only a few things that hold me back from. Um, but I'm proud of all of those because they showed that I was charging. I know I sound like a sadistic idiot, but uh, you know, every scar I have is one that I was pushing myself for. Mm -hmm. And skiing is about injuries. You know, it's actually for a very dangerous sport, it's a very long lifeline because you do spend a big chunk of it rehabbing. Um, and I just think that there, you know, that's, that's times where I learned to push myself and I kind of take that in life now. And when I talk to people, I see so many people living within their comfort zone. No one pushes themselves anymore. You know, this is who they are and that's who they are. They don't have that growth mindset to, to be better every single day. And, and I think that I look down at my scars and I think that those are the times that I learned. I didn't learn when I won medals. I learned when I had to pull myself out of that depth of sadness and injury and go, why do I want to ski? I don't ski because I'm making money. I ski because I love it. Mm -hmm. And you talked about that earlier. I, even my family, they, they, they had an intervention um, after my big crash and said, look, you've done great. You've done a few Olympics. You've done three Olympics. You've done, you know, you've been pushing yourself in the sport for a long time. And we think it's time that you should move on. But they didn't understand that I wasn't driven by anything except for the passion that I had to ski. I'm so fortunate that my passion was my profession and still is mm. um, and like, if I can do it if I can keep going and push myself then I've got to give myself one last chance and I did and actually after the Sochi Olympics in 2014 um, I had such a great Olympics I was 1.8 off the win having done four minutes of skiing before I got in that start gate and I was like I'm going to keep going I remember BBC were in the finish area and they were ready for my uh, retirement speech <laughs> and I got to the bottom and Graham's there going so Shenny that's it and I'm like oh actually actually I'm going to keep going <laughs> and he's like what I'm like, yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna go for one more Olympics he's like oh gosh okay blah blah anyway so then um fortunately and for unfortunately but after that race after Sochi I did one more world cup and I crashed and I went to see my surgeon and he said to me Shenny I let you race the Olympics because I could see that it meant so much to you but if you break this metal rod in your leg now then we will have to take your leg away from the knee down you, that, that bone is shattered, that's, that's what you all have to have. And it was great for me actually, um, in a weird way that someone took my career away from me. Mm. They put the rest of my life and my passion, because I want to ski until I'm 80. I married a skier, it, it's so much ingrained in who I am. Um, and he, he said, you know, yes, you won't be able to ski race, you'll be able to ski, you just can't go 80, 90 miles an hour. And that was really great, because I would have kept going. I would have mm. kept going, and then you I could have maybe in that danger zone yeah are you in physical pain now with your leg I'm um, only sometimes I'm um, actually when, when I'm skiing hard skiing's all about I'm sure you know this Nat thing great skier but it's all about that forward flexion so pushing the shin against the tongue of the boot um, and I and I can't do that on my right leg 
um, because of where that break is. So sometimes I back off that joint. So I do have to compensate. So sometimes when I ski, it's sore. Uh, running downhill, don't love running anyway. I love, love plodding, um, but running downhill, it's sore. Um, but yeah, no, everything else mostly I can do. Okay, time for Bose's handy tips about how we can all cope a bit better over the next few weeks and potentially months um, under lockdown. I think that's part of the problem, isn't it? We just don't know how long this is going to last. And that lack of control over our own lives can let anxiety creep in. But hopefully, if we can all follow these little nuggets of advice, it may just help. Okay, first of all, take time for yourself to stay centred and sane. Number two, seize moments of calm. They may be few and far between, but they are out there. You just need to grab them with both hands. Number three, find your sanctuary away from the chaos. Now, if like me, your whole house is chaotic, then that might be hard. But there must be a little corner somewhere where you can take yourself off and just have a moment or two. Because remember, timeouts aren't just for kids. It's really important to take a little me time because it can go a long way. I know that sounds a bit selfish because I always feel guilty if I go off and read a book or listen to some music or have a bath or all three at the same time. But I think and hope that we all come back to our jobs in the house with the kids, with our family as better mothers, better partners, more productive if we have taken a bit of time out. Cabin fever is real. So one way to smash that oppressive feeling is to learn something new. Take up a new hobby, for example. Don't resist and fight the new norm. Embrace it. Shape it to suit you. For example, you could move rooms, change the layout at your home, create a new space dedicated to a new hobby. Make working for home work for you. Don't be afraid of the silence if indeed it exists at any point during your day, it can be truly golden after all. Try to block out unhelpful noise and that will also reduce your anxiety. It's not where you work, it's how you work. So make it work for you with a little bit of help from Bose. Feel more, do more, be more with Bose. Now tell me, has your mindset shifted at all since becoming a mum? Because I'm interested to know, because there's no doubt your boys will ski and potentially want to ski competitively, having the parents' great gene pool that they do. And um, to be become a mum, you, that you suddenly batten down the hatch yeah. and go, oh, let's not take risks in the same way. I had hoped that, yes, when I became a mum, those screws that had been loose in my head that had helped me be downhill ski racer might start connecting and I might have a bit more responsibility for myself as well because my, you know, my identity would shift and I would have to take care of these little people. I mean, it has a bit, but it hasn't gone all the way and I think that's really, really important. I remember this, this season uh, for Ski Sunday, I took part in the world's uh, longest amateur ski race. And it was just a crazy, crazy event. 1,900 people almost starting every 10 seconds. I started two behind Damon Hill, actually. Um, and you're overtaking each other, undertaking. It, there, there's hardly any netting on this piece. It's 15 kilometers long in its, in its entirety. Um, 
And for two nights before, I couldn't sleep because I was like, who am I now? Am I a mother? Can I do this? I had all this expectation because everyone thought I was going to win because I was a past ski racer. But I had all this pressure on having to finish the race on TV. My, my aim was to go there and promote it for amateur ski racers. If I crashed, the whole show would be gone. And that also, if I wasn't fast, everyone would mock me. That's what I thought. And so I really struggled with that. And I did not start getting, I was petrified. And at the bottom, I bloody loved it. I loved pushing myself out of that comfort zone. And I realized that I could wear both hats. I could be a mum. I could be someone who still searched for the fear of pushing themselves. And I think I, I have suppressed that old Shemi for quite a long time. And I think it's very important that I bring her back because I can only be true to myself if I, if I am who I am with my past, present and future. Mm. And so that was, that was really great to have the opportunity. And presumably that's helped with the transition from retirement into kind of like a, an after life of um, not being competitive at the highest level. Because I think the problem for so many professional sportsmen and women is that sort of drop off the edge of a cliff when they retire. They, they are looking for their fixes elsewhere. Whereas it feels to me like you are still doing enough of the, uh, that adrenaline stuff to keep fully charged. I mean, I think because skiing is readily available to everyone and, you know, racing car driving, for instance, you get the same rush, but there's not many times you could go back out on a track, private track, and push yourself those limits. Whereas skiing, it's, it's accessible to everyone. Mm. Um, so I'm still able to do it. I'm still able to get up early at sunrise and see that piece with no one on it and, and go, you know what, today I will go hard again. Um, and yeah, no, I, I think it's really, really important. And I think as a woman retirement who wanted to become a mum, it's slightly easier because I had a goal. Um, I knew that I wanted to get pregnant um, and that I would have this new identity. You know, I'd been Shemi the ski racer because of my weird name. I didn't even have to tell people my surname when I was calling anyone. I'm like, oh, I'm Shemi that skier. And like, oh yeah, yeah. So that's who I was. Yeah. So who when I wasn't in the racer anymore but I got to become a mother I mean it was a big fight actually you know being a being an athlete you think everything's in your control and if you work harder you get stronger if if you work on your mental strength you will be more confident so I remember we decided to start trying for a baby and we booked a holiday to Bali when I was ovulating we're like right great we're gonna get it on loads and then we will make a baby because that's what happens this is the goal and it actually took 18 months and it was really hard for me mentally because I couldn't control something for the first time in a long time. You know, it was my body, but it was my body's way of saying that I wasn't ready, actually. Um, I was still crazy living at a fast pace. I was addicted to caffeine, which actually does have um, uh, an impact on fertility. Um, what I, were you we got coffee or... Coffee, yeah, love coffee. So I'd, I'd been loading on caffeine when I was a ski racer. Um, to the extent that I was up to eight shots a day and I kept that going when I retired. I did a lot of work in Italy. Um, so I just lived the life um, and my body was in fight or flight. So I had some tests on my adrenals and I was always fighting or flighting and I was always on. And so my body would, couldn't get pregnant because it was trying to deal with all these demons all the time. Um, and it was an ac acupuncturist who found that out for me. I remember I had two days off before I saw him and I was super chilled and rested and I went and lay down on his couch and he put all these wires and things on me and he was just like okay you need to relax and I was like I'm almost asleep but this is about as relaxed as I get buddy and he said no your body is is in a crazy way right now 
Um, so it was really, 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 and he was actually the one who found out I was pregnant after these 18 months of trying. And um, so I went back to see him for another, um, another session. And he's like, oh, something's weird today. And I was like, well, I've done a pregnancy test two days ago because I was obsessed with it. Unfortunately, every time you get your period, you have the same emotions and, you know, same bloating as you would when you're early pregnant. So I was like, oh, I must be pregnant. I've done everything right again. And, um, and yeah, so he, uh, and he was the one who's like, something's off. And I said, well, I'm not pregnant. And the next morning he sent me a text saying, I really think you're pregnant. And I was like, well, don't let my hopes get high again. And Dougie was away doing this quite high level stress um, ski instructing exam. And I was like, right, I'm not going to do another test because I know, I, I know I'm not pregnant. I won't let my hopes get up. And I, I lasted to the Friday. So I lasted five days and I did a test and it was positive. And I remember calling Dougie and it was the day of his exam. Like, you've got to get outside. You've got to outside. We're pregnant. And he was screaming and screaming. And then he's like, oh, I've got to go. I've got to do my exam. <laughs> um, do you know that was amazing. And actually, a little backstory there. Yeah. Um, I got pregnant because I tore my ACL. So I tore my ACL on a tug of war on snow. And I actually had to take time out and relax. I mean, that makes it sound like I'm lying on a <laughs> bed doing nothing. <laughs> anyway, it was, it, that's what I needed. I yeah. needed to almost, you know, get injured without the pressure of being back to an athletic sport mm. to, to relax. It's so interesting that you say 18 months, because when you, when you kind of refer to that time scale, now 18 months in the whole scheme of things doesn't seem much but when you're in it it's like an eternity i mean that's that's 18 months of thinking you're pregnant because you do and being disappointed and that was mentally really hard and i'm such a control freak which doesn't make sense that i'm a downhill and a control freak but i am um that i was like look i'm doing everything i could do Dougie, you're doing everything you could do why isn't this happening and you start you know start worrying about everything and looking back I wish I, we'd done one of those fertility MOT tests that would have said, you're fine, he's fine, relax. But we didn't. So then I'm starting thinking, is something wrong with me? I'm five years older than Dougie. Is something wrong with me? Blah, blah. So yeah, anyway. It all, and then the second time it happened straight off, we hadn't even started trying, you know, my body that's, knew what to do. That's right, always the way, that's always the way. In the pink and bows, really want to help during this lockdown. Now, whether we can or not, is another question but we can try and we're going to do that by giving away some more Bose noise cancelling headphones. To win them just share mini anecdotes from your time in lockdown and give us some feedback on this series. Always put in the hashtag Bose and tag in a couple of mates to do the same and you never know those headphones could be yours. Good luck, stay safe and stay connected. Um, why do you say you, it's unusual to be a control freak and a downhill skier? Are, are, is there that much out of your control in the sport? You've got to go on your limit. You've got to be able to do all the prep work and yet get in that start, get and be free. If you try and control your line or your technique on the way down, you will be slow because you're not letting that freedom of letting the skis go. You've got to essentially point the skis down the hill and just let them go wow. whereas the more power and especially for me because the harder I tried in skiing the slower I was because I had this crazy bad technique of putting pressure on the skis at the end of the turn which is against gravity which would be slow so for me the more relaxed I was the better I skied um now you, you seem and you've you've said that you are a control freak but you seem to really kind of 
have, have a great perspective on yourself. It's almost like you've done some self therapy that you've really kind of worked through and processed a lot. Do you think that that is just part of growing up and, and actually having to grow up very young, not only with starting skiing so young, but losing your mum in your early twenties as well? Yeah, I do. I think, I think, you have these crazy strengths being an athlete. You're very spoilt um, in that your only goal is yourself. Every day you wake up, it's a very selfish existence. Today, I need to be better, stronger, faster. I need to think about me. I used to have a siesta every day because I needed that because I was lifting weights in the morning and doing another session in the afternoon. I mean, what I would give now to have a siesta in the daytime. And it's your, your awareness of who you are is huge. You know, you have to fill out forms every day, mentally do self-checks. Am I feeling okay mentally? Am I feeling okay physically? Are those areas that I can tick the box in order to go to my limit? Because you can only go and push yourself to through that growth mindset, through the ceiling, if every box is ticked. If physically you're strong enough and mentally you've got the confidence to do it. And if your lifestyle, everything's, you know, connected, that cog of life, it has to all be working together in order for you to perform at that elite level. But it's not just that elite level. It's, it's about you as a human in day-to-day -day life being as efficient and as great as you can be. And, and you get these great skills to, to, to have that self-awareness when you're an athlete. And I still have those now, like this morning, waking up, feeling a bit gray and going, you know what, I feel gray. I'm, I've got that awareness, not the whole day, battling my emotions making myself aware this is how i am today and this is how i'm going to react because of it so how that's how i can change it mm. no that's brilliant and actually i think if you can learn that and i think you are proof that you can learn it um that you that we're all kind of works in progress uh then we actually we look back and we and realize how far we've come yeah, you can improve yourself. Mm. You know, we spend so long improving how our house looks, uh, making pretty meals, things like this. You can also look inside yourself and make yourself a better person. Um, you know, yesterday was April Fool's Day and I worked with a charity renamed it April Grateful Day. And I needed that because I'd gotten this kind of bubble in this isolation that everything was great. And yet actually to look outside that bubble and be very, very grateful for what I had is something that I needed. So I think that, that is something that we can always do with, with my, I'm a ski race coach. I've got a business with my husband called Carpe Diem Coaching, which is what my mum said to me every day. She didn't want me to be faster than my mum. She just wanted me to seize the opportunities. And I said, I don't, I don't want to finish and be last. She's like, yeah, but are you safe? I'm like, I don't want to be safe. I want to be fast. But anyway, this Carpe Diem stuck with us and we, our business is called Carpe Diem. And we do this diary work with our athletes uh, where every day we look at three opportunities, three positives from the day, three opportunities for improvement and one thing that made them laugh. And, you know, sometimes these kids come to us and we're at the British Champs and they fall on the first gate and everything, the world closes in on them, it's doom and gloom. And yet we make them sit and do this exercise because there's still daylight left. We can still go and find some positives or we can look back at that crash and think, how have we grown because we picked ourselves up off the floor and got up to be able to do it again tomorrow. So I think that's, that's something that I try, we try and do quite a lot especially when things are tough. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. It feels to me that so many of the lessons you've learned through skiing um, can be applied to anyone's lives, really. Is that yeah, why I mean, you it, the motivational speaking? Yeah, I think that's why. I, I, when I started being asked to do motivational speaking, I remember thinking, but I, I don't have a story. I remember I, I spoke after Jessica Ennis once. And I'm like, look, 
she won an Olympic, multiple Olympic medals. What have I got to show for it? And then every time I did one at the beginning, people would say, you know what, that you showing us that vulnerability and your life lessons learned through the adversity, not through winning. I don't talk about winning anything because I didn't really win anything um, in my career. I talk about all the times that I use my, my own skills to pull me up out of injury and out the lessons I learned when my mum died and all of this. And I think that that, that resonates with people because everyone has those dark moments. Not everyone can work hard and be the best in the world. And that's great that Jess could do that. And she's a phenomenal athlete. And mm. I tried, I tried for 20 years to win that Olympic medal, but I didn't. But I learned so much more from, from picking myself up every single time than I would have. Why do you think more women don't go into skiing, competitive skiing? Um, I think, um, I don't know. I, I genuinely believe it's one of the best sports in the world. I mean, I can understand why more Brits don't do it at that elite level because it does take a lot of sacrifice. You're away from your friends and family a lot. Um, I don't have the mountains on my doorstep. The bigger question is why don't more females get into extreme sports? You okay. know, whatever that is. Sports which have that danger element. Um, and I think it takes a lot of confidence. I think you have to get out of the mold. You have to be fiercely determined. And unfortunately, that is a trait, like I said at the beginning, that when I mentor young, young girls, they're so scared to say, I want to be the best because they don't want to be seen as being arrogant. Whereas if I have a, a young boy, exactly the same talent, he will say to me, I want to be the best. And everyone will say, good on you. High five. Let's go for it. Whereas the girl's perception of what other people will say is, oh my gosh, she's so arrogant. She's overconfident. And that's dire. We need to change that. And, and we are because we have amazing in the UK teams of successful women out there being the best in the world and saying, it's okay to say I want to be the best. Mm. And I think that the kind of danger and the extreme sport is very much connected to that because you have to be driven because there will be injuries. It will be more of a roller coaster possibly than every, than other sports because the, the lows are really low. You know, if you, if you are able to push yourself beyond your limit, um, you know, equestrian, we're talking about equestrians, race driving, that the, the, the difficulties you will face will be longer because the injuries could potentially be bigger. Mm. And there's a lack of funding as well. So, so you yeah. don't get the support. Yeah. yeah. So you've got that lack of funding. You have to believe in yourself even more. I used to have to go into meetings telling people that I would win and, and, you know, having to channel all of this backing of myself I mean the first time I got a sponsor I was around 11 years old and my mum picked me up from school in my school uniform and took me up to London to this business um, and sport um, convention and everyone else was wearing a suit in there and she said to me Shemi go and talk to these people and tell them your dreams and, and you know let's see what happens and I was petrified but I walked away and I and I got my first sponsor that day because wow. I believed in myself and I had to channel huge huge strength because you know, it sounds wrong going, my name's Shemi. I'm, t I'm 11 years old and I'm going to be the best in the world one day. That's, I mean, that's epic. I love it. Do you know what? It's interesting. Someone else said to me that when, when, a, when a girl is, when a boy is assertive, he's called determined and he'll be a world leader. He'll be PM one day. And if a girl is, she's called bossy. Yes. So I wrong. totally agree. So, so wrong. I need to change that. We do. And I, it's people like you who will do just that. I tell you what, I'd love you to be my motivational speaker every day. I'd like just to have a little mini Shemi in my bathroom cabinet that when I get to brush my teeth in the morning, just give me a little pep talk. <laughs> you're so 
that. That's when I'm having a tough day. I, I put um, sticky notes on my mirror um, with some mantras to say, I am bold. I can do this. This is me. So yeah, you can do that. <laughs> Love it. Shemi, you have absolutely charged my soul this morning. Thank you so much for your great energy. Well, thanks for bringing me out of my greyness into the pink. Yay! Look at that. Yay! What I even put a pink top on for you. Thanks, Shemi, for your time. I do love Shemi's honesty. She definitely backs herself, which is great. She's confident, she's ballsy, she's opinionated, outgoing, very engaging. But she's also self-deprecating, in no way arrogant. Confident without bordering on arrogance is... Uh, a fine line to tread, isn't it, for many people? But she is one of those sports stars who's achieved a lot and has somehow made that transition to post-professional uh, athlete status uh, with relative ease. And I think what she's doing now is uh, motivating so many others and being a great mum, being a great role model. So thanks, Shemi. Um, you were brilliant. Really enjoyed your company. Hope we can chat again soon. Okay, loads more coming up on In The Pink, including Graham Swan. Now, you may or may not love your cricket, but I'm sure you're going to love Graham Swan because Swanee has just got a lovely way about him. Uh, he's funny. Um, he enjoys um, mucking about and having fun, but ultimately he is an incredible competitor and uh, his career statistics back that up. So enjoy Swanee later this week. But for now, it's bye-bye from In The Pink. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.